Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Tony Brown, and I am joined by Karen Quigley, author of Performing the Unstageable, Success, Imagination, and Failure. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see me, to be here. So one of the first things I want to start off with is, what was the first show that you saw that you considered unstageable? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, so when I was an undergraduate um, in Dublin, where I'm from, um, there was a kind of arrangement where students would be ushers in the theatre that was attached to the theatre department, which was a commercial theatre um, when uh, the university wasn't in session. Um, and I ended up um, ushering for a production by an Italian theatre company called Societas Raffaello Sanzio, who I didn't really realise this, it was just a show to me, but they were touring a kind of 11 episode um, epic through Europe called Tragedia Endogonidia. And there, the, ep- the episode of this that they had made in Brussels was performed in Dublin in, I guess this was 2003. Um, and one of the first images in the production was a baby on the stage. So nothing else. It was kind of a white cube, three-sided white cube space um, and a baby just sitting there. So maybe a baby about a year old. Um, and I just couldn't get over this image and crucially the audience's responses to it because it kind of uh, varied uh, the, the kind of levels of shock. The reason we were working as ushers was because the number of walkouts this production was having um, necessitated more ushers. Um, so I found it really interesting as someone who knew very little about theatre at the time, I was just starting my undergraduate studies, to see this baby sitting there on the stage. That was theatre, it seemed, all of a sudden. Um, and then to see the responses of the audiences. I remember one night in particular, there, this was kind of, um, I guess, October or November, and a group of social workers were having their annual outing and they thought, we'll take in a show at the Dublin Theatre Festival. So off they went to this show and there was this baby sitting on the stage and I saw about eight or 10 people as one just rise up and leave the theatre. So I was running down the stairs with my torch to escort them out the door. But all the while that image has just, and it stayed with me and it comes up in, in the book. Um, so it's kind of been with me for what, 17 years. Um, and it just kept coming back to me, this idea of what seemed like something impossible to do, like this baby seems alone. Of course it isn't, right? There's people just off stage ready to um, to support it if needed. Um, but you can't control what a baby's doing. So the baby crawls out into the audience or, you know, wanders around the stage, uh, this kind of thing. And it has always, I suppose, stayed with me as a, an image that uh, felt impossible and yet was there in front of me. That's amazing. So, what does it mean, do you think, for a theatrical piece to be considered unstageable by an audience? And what does it mean for creative artists? Yeah, I mean, that's such an interesting thing to uh, to ponder. I suppose um, really central to that at the moment is the fact that live theatre for audiences in co-present space is unstageable in a profound way, like in an, ex- in an inexorable way. It's very, um, it's become impossible for us to be together um, in the ways that we used to in order for theatre to happen. So as you can imagine, this book was published in February and from March, we began to see a very literal unstageability um, globally, internationally, um, which has, of course, um, caused me to think a lot about, you know, 
what unstageable means in that context. But I suppose in terms of how the book as it stands grapples with that idea of what it means for a theatre piece to be considered unstageable by an audience. Um, Historically and geographically, that means different things to different people at different times. So the book kind of tries to explore the fact that the term itself is really slippery because it's, you know, we've just talked about, you know, my first um, memory of seeing something that I felt there's something unstageable about this, but that was seeing something that had been staged, right? So the term itself is um, very slippery in that regard. And I kind of talk a lot in the book about the contingency of the unstageable, right? It depends on other factors. So it might mean things that are technically or technologically difficult to put on stage or things that people find difficult to watch at the theater, like the example I just gave, um, things that are socially inappropriate to put on stage, uh, things that the theatre can't do yet, but we might have a hint that it might be able to in the future, um, or things that some theatres can't afford to do, or things that some bodies on stage can't do. So there are kind of lots of different shifting contingent ways of thinking about this concept. So what I'm trying to explore is the idea that we can kind of sit with that and investigate it rather than thinking that we have to try and get around it or find a way through it or somehow, you know, surmount the unstageable. I think there's something really interesting in performing the fact that it exists, if that makes sense. Right. No, that that makes total sense. And you kind of break down your book into four different parts, stage directions, adaptation, violence, and ghosts. So to start with stage directions, you state that Writing stage directions, unstageable stage directions, is a form of creative resistance from a playwright to the director, designer, production team, and cast as a spur of creativity and inspiration. Why is that so important? And what are some examples of that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of the absolutely central threads of the book for me. So I'm so glad you've asked about it. Um, When I was a a PhD student at the very start of my uh, research, a colleague pointed me towards a line from um, the German writer Heiner Müller. Um, And there was an interview with him in 1975 where he says, literature has the task of offering resistance to the theatre. And that just stopped me in my tracks completely because I had, as when I was an undergraduate and in any of the theatre I had made, I'd always thought about the text as being um, a kind of blueprint for theatre making, right? It was kind of a recipe for the production. Um, So thinking about literature has the task of offering resistance to the theatre, you know, what would it mean for the text to actually be a resistant force, like generative, productive, but resistance? So kind of trying to push the creative work further. Um, And in the book, I actually drew a little diagram of what I mean about this, which obviously your listeners can't see. But if you imagine the, the text's the the writer, the playwright's creativity traveling from A to B, right? Rather than the creative team reading the text, arriving at B and thinking, right, we'll stop here, we'll stage B. Um, What happens if they travel onwards? So from C to D to wherever. Um, So traveling a further distance, but in a different way. And so this feels really important to me because it destabilizes the idea, which is still very prevalent in a lot of UK theater anyway, um, that the text is a kind of um, like a holy thing that can't be messed with. But, you know, 
this way of thinking about the text presents it as a more fluid document that is encouraging us to kind of think about challenge. Now, obviously, in um, in mainland Europe, there's a much longer tradition of using a playtext as a jumping off point in that kind of way, rather than as a text to be followed directly. Um, so for me, the unstageable stage direction is a really interesting locus of this. And some of the best examples are, I suppose, ignoring the practical constraints of production as they appear at the time of writing. Um, so kind of genuinely saying to a production team, well, go on, stage that, have a go. Um, you know, and not necessarily thinking about in the process of writing, how is the production team going to stage that? Um, so some of the examples I love are, uh, well, there's a really classic um, Shakespeare stage direction from The Winter's Tale, Exit Pursued by a Bear, um, which is, you know, always a fascinating one for me to come back to. But something that's, again, been been with me for probably 10 years or more as I've thought through the themes that became this book um, is Sarah Kane's stage direction in her play Cleansed. So one character cuts off another character's hands, spoilers, um, and the direct the stage direction reads, so Tinker cuts off Carl's hands and the stage direction reads, Carl tries to pick up his hands. He can't. He has no hands. And that, to me, was just a fascinating example of um, a stage direction that is already building on the idea of a character cutting off another character's hands, which, you know, through sleight of hand and stage business and so on, we, we can make it look to an audience like that has happened or not, or something in between, or something more metaphorical. But the writing of a stage direction, like Carl tries to pick up his hands, he can't, he has no hands. The humor in that just felt like such a challenge to a production team to say, well, this is the stage direction I'm writing. He tries to pick up his hands. He can't. He has no hands. I've just realized that you need hands to pick up your hands and you no longer have the hands. So that kind of um, example is always really interesting to me in terms of the sort of creativity inherent in it and getting a production team to, to really think big thoughts and make enormous radical decisions. Um, and then there's lots of other examples in, in Beckett um, in a play called Ghost Trio. There's a stage direction um, that says the door is imperceptibly ajar. Brilliant. What, how do we do that? What does that mean? Um, and in uh, The Scriker by Carol Churchill, we have stage directions like pound coins drop out of her mouth as she speaks. Um, and then some, another one I write about in the book is um, a more recent play called Wild by Mike Bartlett. He's done a lot of brilliant TV writing in the UK more recently. Um, and it, it says the whole room tilts 90 degrees. So what happens if the whole room, the whole stage tilts 90 degrees? Of course, we can do it and they did it. But the idea of that stage direction, the writing of it doesn't seem concerned. And I mean that in a good way with what a production team should or could be trying to do. Um, and then there's other examples like Heiner Muller, who I mentioned already, his play Hamlet Machine says something about, um, you know, there's a swing, the Madonna with breast cancer sits on the swing, the breast cancer shines like the sun, something like that. That that kind of image is, you know, another really interesting example of the text kind of being a force of resistance, but encouraging a creative, uh, creative resistance between the text and its production. Right. Totally. And what I've also noticed about these stage directions, too, is that they're extremely literal. And so through that kind of realism of the stage direction actually forces that kind of creativity um, with the creative team. Um, like cutting off your hands and, yeah. and things like that. <laughs> 
So why is stage directions important to Sarah Kane? Well, I mean, I can't speak for her, but she there's a brilliant quotation from her in, I think, a book by Graham Saunders, um, again, talking about cleansed. And she says, you may say it can't be staged, but it can't be anything else either. So that goes right back to what I'm saying about uh, Heiner Muller and literature and resistance and the theatre. It can't be staged and yet it can only be staged. So, I mean, theatre is obviously littered with paradoxes. So, you know, as an actor, I stand on the stage and I pretend I'm someone else while simultaneously pretending that the 500 people watching me aren't there at all to generalize enormously about all of these practices. Um, So there are paradoxes everywhere we look at the theatre, but this idea that's that a writer would say this play can't be staged and yet it can only be staged suggests on the one hand a real commitment to theater um, but on the other hand a real challenge to theater um, so again you know asking a, a team to make radical decisions about how staging will actually work so I think for Sarah Kane she she's kind of maybe keen not to be constrained by the limitations or possibilities of theatre. She's thinking beyond that. But I suppose it's also important to, again, like speaking from interviews that she uh, gave while she was still alive, um, that she was really interested in the idea that her stage directions shouldn't be interpreted literally. Um, And I think I forget what the source is, but there's a wonderful interview with her where she talks about seeing a production of Cleansed in Germany um, and was kind of horrified at how literally the stage directions were being taken, which if you've read the play, there's quite a lot of literal stuff to wade through if that's the direction you're going. Exactly. Um, so it's, yeah, so it's really interesting to kind of, um, you know, not that authorial intent is the, is the be all or end all really ever, but it's, it's very interesting to kind of go back to that idea that the text is, you know, um, a, a jumping off point or a kind of creative challenge. So then when that's taken up extremely literally, um, that's maybe not the only option there is for staging. Right. And so I, I kind of like what you were saying about that duality. It, it cannot be staged and yet it must be staged. And so when you talk about in your adaptation section of the book, you you, you talk about elevator repair services, production of GATS. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was fascinating that you bring up through the critics reviews is that there seemed to be a universal consensus about the show that the play was an adaptation of the book and not an adaptation of the book at all. Yeah. And so what what was director John Collins doing with that novel to elicit that sort of reaction? And, and why is that inherently important to staging gets? Yeah, that's so that's so interesting. So I I think that in fact John Collins and Elevator Repair Service themselves didn't kind of deny that it's an adaptation. Um and I suppose it's important to say for anyone who hasn't um, engaged with this production is that the entire book is spoken, right? So what we have in Gats is um, a, a stage, so a very naturalistic looking office set just before the workday begins. Um, and Scott Shepard, the actor, um, enters. He seems to be maybe playing a bored office worker of some kind. Um, and he sits down at his computer. He turns it on. He opens the desk drawer, finds a copy of The Great Gatsby, the novel, um, in his desk. And he starts reading it aloud. Um, not to us, kind of to himself. Um, and then over time, he's kind of getting more confident and more interested. And the office day starts to unfold around him, but he keeps reading. And so 
we realize that he's kind of becoming Nick Carraway or kind of channeling Nick Carraway, the, the narrator of the um, of Fitzgerald's novel. Um, and even as the normal office things are happening around him, um, the day-to-day photocopier or someone making a cup of coffee or whatever, um, these begin to take on a totally different significance in the context of what we're hearing about. So we're hearing about, you know, the world of West Egg and the, the, the dinners and the parties and all the rest. So the novel is really present on stage in lots of ways. So it's physically there. It's, you know, Shepard has obviously clearly learned massive chunks of this novel or it like doesn't really seem to need it, but it's there. He's the, the performance is him reading this novel to us. And we're making sense of this over eight hours, right? So it's a long, a long time to sit and, and think through. So I'd argue that the, the work that we're doing as audience members there is very different to what we're doing when we see other adaptations of stuff. So generally, a stage or a screen adaptation of a novel has to, or generally has to, pick and choose particular scenes or characters or moments to to stage or to put on screen. So whether consciously or otherwise, when we're watching an adaptation of something we know, we enjoy, or I guess endure or put up with, um, this idea, um, the adaptation theorist Linda Hutchin calls it oscillation, right? So we're oscillating between the text that we know and the thing that's happening on the stage or on the screen. But here in Gats, it's all there. So the whole book is there, but the setting isn't there at all. So the imaginative work we're doing to connect what we're hearing with what we're not seeing kind of is the work of bringing the whole thing to life. So I suppose what Elevator Repair Service are showing us is, you know, that we we don't need to see the, you know, the glamorous world of The Great Gatsby. It can be read to us in what looks like a, a fairly boring setting. Um, and the work that we do as audience members um, kind of uh, falling into the story in a way is something that becomes, I suppose, less an adaptation, but also only an adaptation because it's, it's bringing a novel to the stage, but it's bringing, you know, it's taking that premise really seriously, right? Elevator repair service are taking the whole novel to the stage and just kind of plonking it down there and encouraging us to do a lot of the, the thinking and imaginative work. Right. And so another aspect of unstageable and adaptation, we kind of talk about or you talk about problematic theater. And and one of those examples is Brandon Jacob Jacobs uh, dealing with uh, the problem of race in his adaptation of the five act melodrama, The Octoroon. What techniques does Jacobs employ to interrogate those problems of adapting a show for a contemporary audience? Yeah, so this is such an interesting production to me. Um, though I want to say straight up that I'm really aware of my own positionality here as a white scholar talking about this play. So um, before I, I delve in, I'd love to amplify other voices and point your listeners towards um, Salome Wagen's uh, long-form review of the London production of An Octorune for um, Exeunt, the website. Um because I think she's really interesting and really precise about the way that the laughter in the production worked and how that felt for her as a person of color in the audience. So I'd really um, encourage your listeners in that direction. Um, and in terms of your question, so the so the American playwright, uh, Brandon Jacob Jenkins, um, takes this 1859 melodrama by the Anglo-Irish writer Dion Boussico um, as a starting point for his adaptation. So the original play is itself an 
an adaptation of a novel um, called The Quadroon. And Busico makes this huge, sprawling, five-act melodramatic story, which is um, extremely, well, complicated in one way, but kind of... Um, very straightforward in lots of other ways. So it's kind of a love story between um, uh, George Payton, who's the heir of the uh, of a plantation, Terrebonne Plantation, and Zoe, who's the daughter of um, George's uncle. And Zoe's mother was one of the plantation's slaves. And Zoe self-identifies as one-eighth black, or the octoroon of the title, though that term obviously is long fallen out of circulation. So this means that uh, Zoe and George can't marry. They're in love, but they can't marry because of... Uh, miscegenation law. Um, at the same time, the plantation is in financial trouble um, because of mismanagement by uh, Jacob McCluskey, who's the villain of the play, who also is in love with Zoe. And so the family realized that they are going to need to sell some of the plantation slaves in order to save the estate. So uh, McCluskey, our villain, realizes that given Zoe's status and self-identification, she could technically be sold to him in this context. Uh, separately, melodrama plots, uh, separately, a letter arrives to the plantation which promises the repayment of a debt which could save the whole, save the day, save the whole plantation. Um, but McCluskey intercepts the delivery of the letter by murdering um, the slave who was tasked with its uh, delivery. And the murder weapon is a, a tomahawk that McCluskey has stolen from the friend of the guy he murders, Paul's friend, uh, Juan O.T., who's a Native American. So Juan O.T., is, he's accused of the murder. It looks like he's going to be essentially lynched for this. Um, but then he's acquitted. And this was an enormous big deal at the time. The reason he's acquitted is because of a photograph, because a camera has taken a photograph. A camera was left set up at the murder scene accidentally and happened to capture the image of McCluskey murdering Paul. Now, this seems really standard to us today, you know, for watching police procedural drama or um, crime of any kind. You know, there's always like someone's captured something on CCTV or whatever. But this was radical at the time, the idea that a camera, it was hugely technologically advanced. This is 1859. Um, so this is a big deal for the audience. And that kind of sorts the whole thing out. But it's too late back to melodrama. It's too late for Zoe because she has already killed herself in order to escape what she thinks is going to be her new life as McCluskey's um, slave, sexual slave, probably. So, sorry, that was a massive um, explanation of the plot of the original. But it's kind of important to get to what I think you're asking about because, so Brandon Jacobs Jenkins takes this on. Um, and he follows the storyline of Busico's play um, in, in general terms. But he but the play opens with a kind of prologue, which is a monologue about very much about the concept of an African-American playwright adapting the octoroon and how that might be possible. Um, and the character who delivers this uh, monologue is called BJJ. So the initials, Brandon Jacob Jenkins, BJJ. And the, the, this prologue describes a conversation between BJJ and his therapist, um, who's white, and who suggests that uh, BJJ should adapt Busico's play for fun. Um, and then we get to the Busico storyline. And so... This is, as I say, followed in general terms, um, but in terms of the techniques he uses in order to interrogate this problem, one of the things he does is he gives two of the plantation slaves, Dido and Minnie, um, much bigger roles than they have in the Busico. So we see a lot of the story through their eyes, which is an interesting kind of transfer of voice and um, 
and I suppose storytelling and uh, character positioning, which I think is really uh, interesting in terms of uh, the question you've asked. Um, he puts the play in the round. It's I think pretty much written to be in the round. So the audience are, and this, it's quite, the lighting is quite bright. So we're kind of looking at each other, um, everyone watching each other and seeing who, what people are laughing at, what is making people feel uncomfortable, which is kind of folding into this whole idea of what it means for a black playwright to adapt this, uh, this play. Um, he also uses the tradition of white actors blacking up um, and really drills into it. So in, in the play, and he's really specific in the cast list about uh, about casting suggestions. So he so we have in the play black actors in white face, white actors in red face, actors specified in the casting list as Native American or mixed race or South Asian or who can pass as Native American in blackface and so on. And I'm being really precise with those descriptions because uh, Jacob Jenkins is in his uh, in his cast list. Um, but also really importantly, he delves into the idea of the photo that acquits Wanity. Um, so about, I suppose, three quarters of the way through the play or four fifths of the way through the play, uh, we return to the world of this pl- prologue with BJJ. And he reminds us that the last act of a melodrama is always about like the big finish, right? Spectacle, really hitting the audience with something um, enormous. And then a still image of a lynching is projected onto the wall of the theater. Um, And then we move back to the world of the plantation and the story and so on. Um, So there is um, a real kind of bringing the world of the 1859 play into the the kind of um, early 21st century. And there's a lot of kind of shifting around as well of the, the, I suppose, the identity signifiers of everyone involved. So, um, for example, the same actor plays BJJ, George Payton and Jacob McCluskey. So the kind of uh, the hero and the villain and the playwright, the BJJ character are all played by the same actor. Um, so, uh, so this kind of creates a really interesting um, connection. There's a wonderful scene where George and McCluskey are kind of having it out and the same actor is, you know, literally turning and turning to embody both of these characters at the same time. So, and there's lots of examples of that. The, the face paint starts to drip, the floor lifts up, and it, we something we thought was stable is no longer stable. There's a really, um, there's a kind of constant um, interrogation of, and in a way, playfulness with the, the problem at hand, right? The impossibility at hand. Um, and that, that creates, I suppose, a production that, is encouraging us to think and keep thinking and feel uncomfortable and sit with the uncomfortable feelings and so on. Right. And, and so one of the things you talk about in the show is crime. So I'd, I'd love to use that to move on to violence and the unstageability of that. So in the staging of violence and blood in your book, you, you talk about the relationship between the visible and the imaginary with the audience. What are some examples of this and, and why is it so important to have this dynamic between the two? Yeah, um, I think visuality is really important and visibility is really important at the theater um, because we're kind of, what we see, what, what is given to us to see on stage is you know, roughly the same for like, you know, it might depend on where you're sitting in the space, that kind of thing. But the image that we're given to see is, is consistent. But I would suggest that what we imagine in relation to it is always and inherently different, 
Um, because we come to anything we watch, we come to it um, differently as different people with uh, a different day behind us before we arrive at the theater in the evening um, and a different you know, world we're returning to at the end of the night and so on. And so in the chapter on violence and blood, with that in mind, I'm really interested in that gap between what is given to us to see on the stage and what is left for us to imagine. Um, and so in, into that gap, I'm very interested in the kind of, I suppose, the volume of how much we're given to see and what that does to our imaginings and audience response. So kind of looking at it as a sliding scale, I um, I look at the some really uh, graphically realistic examples of blood on stage, like the French Théâtre du Grand Guignol, which was a horror theatre um, of the mid kind of early to mid 20th century and was really interested in that idea of, you know, how can we make it look like this eyeball is popping out of this skull and so on. Um, so that's a really, and, and people went to that theater and, you know, passed out and threw up. And um, that was all kind of part of the deal. That was what you were particularly interested in. And indeed, some of the uh, most famous um, examples of Théâtre du Grand Guignol um, were the kind of, I suppose, the marketing or the PR spin around it where they were advertising for doctors. Like, we need a doctor for our theater because so many people are passing out because our stuff is so scary, um, which I, I really love as a kind of a, um, you could imagine that on social media if we'd had such a thing at that time. Right. Um, and so so that's so that to me feels like um, you know that gap between what we're given to see on stage and what we're being encouraged to imagine is being is being packed up right like really filled with uh, this graphically realistic horror. There's not loads being left to the imagination, as it were. Um, and then I look also at examples that use um, use stage blood in in interesting ways. So the the company I mentioned at the start of this conversation, who had the baby on the stage, Sachietus Rafael Asanzio, in the same production, um, there's a, a long scene where two policemen come out on stage and they pour it's clearly a bottle of stage blood. They practically hold it up to us and then they pour the bottle of stage blood in a big pool on the floor, and then another actor comes in takes off his clothes, lies down in the pool of blood. And the two policemen mime, like really, really clearly mime in slow motion, kind of whacking him with truncheons. And the truncheons don't really make connection with the skin. It's all very slow motion. There's an enormous soundtrack filling the space. So a huge thwack sound every time um, truncheon meets skin, though we can see that it doesn't really. Um, and the actor on the ground in the pool of blood kind of starts to writhe around in the pool of blood. This, this goes on for what feels like, well, a very long time. And in, in the in the, I suppose, endurance of it, like as it, as it continues, it begins to feel more real rather than less real, even though we know we've been told that this is stage blood. Um, we know that the, the beating isn't happening in the way that, um, you know, the imagination of it might be, but yet this, this gap between what's being given to us to see on stage and what we're imagining kind of closes up in a way that as the company put it, encourages us to fall into representation, which, uh, I've always found really fascinating. Fascinating. When you compare it to something like the Théâtre du Grand Guignol, which was really interested in, as I say, the graphically realistic horror. Um, and then I also look at the um, British company, performance company Forced Entertainment, um, whose production Dirty Work has two characters on stage who describe um, enormous, violent, bloody images to us. 
So they say things like, you know, um, a fork is used to prize out a vein, which is then bitten through. And the response in the audience the night I saw it was pretty much what I'd imagine it to be uh, if I was if I had been there, if I had been alive to see the Théâtre du Grand Guignol. You know, we still have an embodied response. Someone says something like a fork is used to prize out a vein, which is then bitten through. And you just hear, oh, oh, in the audience, right? It's still a, a very kind of visceral or physical response. So this is important, I suppose, because it, it articulates different ways of imagining that relationship between what is shown and what is imagining, what is imagined. But I think it also shows, I suppose, how theatre can operate at different levels of um, technological advancement or storytelling or dramaturgy, but still elicit similar responses. So it, it's very interesting to me that it suggests kind of how much we need or don't need um, in order to elicit the kinds of responses we're after when we're looking at things like staging violence and blood. Right. Yeah. I, no, I, I love those examples and kind of like the, the different ways that, that we can do it and the possibilities that are there. Um, so let's talk about Shakespeare. He is one of the more famous stage directions. You talk about early on in the book, Exit Pursued by a Bear and and the implications of, of, of that sequence. And so it, he leaves so much open for interpretation and especially in Hamlet and what you dive into is particularly the ghost sequence in Hamlet. And why does the Hamlet ghost scene, uh, why is it so unique to dive into for the stage? And, and what are some examples of different ways theater companies have portrayed this scene on stage? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, it's such rich ground for, uh, for directors and actors and designers. Um, I suppose because we have so many possible interpretations of what the figure of a ghost or the concept of a ghost might look like or feel like or sound like, but there, you know, and there's consensus on this in kind of literature or horror films or that kind of thing. But, you know, it, it's possible to say that we don't know for sure what a ghost looks like or feels like or sounds like. So, I mean, as I say in the book, there are histories of, um, you know, literature of ghosts, you know, looking like they have sheets on their heads. That was my favorite Halloween costume when I was little. Um, so evergreen. Um, and, you know, ghosts going woo and scaring us in various kinds of ways. But, you know, obviously, a scene like the ghost scene in Hamlet encourages us maybe to explore what it might mean to encounter someone who is dead in lots of ways. That's kind of the offer. If we talk about this idea of the playtext being an offer to a production team, that's kind of the offer. What, what does it mean? Hamlet's father is dead. He appears to him. We call it a ghost. But that word ghost can mean so many different things in different contexts and different times. So there's there's lots of examples of how this has uh, been explored in practice. Um, so in uh, the 18th century, David Garrick playing Hamlet um, had a special, this is such a, a classic 18th or 19th century theater thing, had a special wig made. So it looked like his hair was really standing on end. Um, so I've no idea how that would work, but uh, I love the image that we would just have all these little hairs standing up on end. Um, in the production that I discuss in the book, um, so I talk about the Wooster Group's uh, Hamlet and the production that that production is based on is the production of Hamlet from the 60s, directed by John Gielgud, starring Richard Burton. Um, for the ghost scene of that, they use kind of a disembodied voice and a big shadow. And you, you see quite a lot of that. 
um, indeed, more recently, I think maybe three or four years ago um, in the UK for the Almeida and then West End Transfer, Robert Icke directed Andrew Scott as Hamlet. And there we saw the ghost on CCTV and Hamlet talked to um, the ghost over a tannoy system, which I thought was kind of quite similar to the idea of the disembodied voice in the 60s. Um, and then we have, uh, I've mentioned Forced Entertainment already and in their complete works, um, which interestingly for your listeners, I think is being streamed over the next couple of months. They're, they're redoing uh, that series of, so it's kind of complete works of Shakespeare, but it's telling the story of each play in turn. And um, an actor sits behind a table and illustrates the story of, say, Hamlet using objects that might be around the house. So um, when I saw, when they did this a few years ago and I saw it, um, the, the ghost was a cheese grater. Um, and we have characters being played by bottles of balsamic vinegar or onions or water glasses or whatever. So in, in the ghost scene, um, in that, as I say, the, the cheese grater plays a ghost, which I found really interesting. Um, in, I think in the book, I, I talk about the idea that, you know, a cheese grater, like a ghost, has a really specific function, right? The ghost is appearing. There's usually unfinished business or there's something that has to be resolved. Um, and that's, that's the main function of the ghost. And a cheese grater can only grate cheese. Um, it can't do anything else. I guess it can grate other things, but it's a really specific function. That's uh, probably the strap line for this podcast. Cheese great, but only great cheese. Um, and then we have um, casting used in interesting ways for ghost scenes. So in uh, the, I think the RSC around 2008, uh, Greg Doran directed David Tennant in Hamlet um, and Patrick Stewart was double cast as Claudius and the ghost. Um, so Claudius and um, Hamlet's father. So there was a really interesting um, uh, doubling going on there. And then more recently, um, I think also for the RSC, Simon Godwin directed Papa Esiedu as Hamlet. And that production was kind of drawing on um, a West African setting or West African inspired setting and used uh, ceremonial drumming to announce the ghost's arrival. So a kind of summoning of the ghost rather than the kind of... Um, a sudden appearance of the ghost as we see in other productions. So I think it's a particularly interesting and rich scene for anyone directing Hamlet for that reason, that there's kind of a lot of impossibility and unstageability and thus kind of openness, I suppose, attached to the idea of a ghost appears. What do you want to do with that? Yeah, there's, there's so much to mine with that, you know? Yeah. So... Final question. In your own words, why is it important for theater artists to keep exploring the unstageable in, in work? Yeah, that's such a gorgeous question. Um, I suppose to me, the unstageable in a way is nothing new to theater artists, right? I think they're kind of constantly the architects of the unstageable in whatever they do. Um, theater in so many ways seems to be about doing things that feel impossible. Um, but as I say, this has become a really literal question at the moment. Um, and I think once we get the theaters up and running again in co-present space, obviously there's lots of amazing online work happening at the moment, but once we're back together in theaters again, um, it does feel important to keep reaching towards the limits of what is possible and beyond that, but not necessarily to see those limits in technological terms, right? Because it, it feels like hope to keep thinking about what theatre can't do or can't do yet um, alongside what it can do. It keeps us kind of um, reaching and stretching and thinking about the future. Um, and 
in fact, one of the examples that I opened the book with, um, which is John Cage's organ work, As Slow as Possible, um, which has no tempo markings. So someone's really gone for it. And it's currently being performed over 639 years in Halberstadt in Germany. Um, I just saw last week that they've done the latest uh, change from a note to another note. So a chord that had been held down since 2013 um, changed to another chord. And it won't change again until February 2022. And that really got me thinking about, you know, what the world is going to look and feel and be like in by February 2022 and what theatre might be doing by then. And, you know, keeping that idea of the impossible and the hope of the impossible um, in our minds, if it's possible, feels like something that continues to be important. Right. And and not only the impossible, but talk about the dialogue between mortality and immortality. Putting on a piece of work that lasts over 600 years is kind of guaranteed to make your work almost immortal because it just keeps going and going. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a it's such a fascinating provocation, you know, and we we think, you know, theater artists are, are struggling so profoundly at the moment um, to kind of keep keep uh well i suppose keep the, themselves going in lots of very practical and economic um ways so the idea that out there in germany um there's an organ that's been built that can play this piece over 639 years um allows us to to kind of remember that 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 is there and that will still be there. Um, and that maybe the situation we find ourselves in at the moment, maybe there will be a way through it and a way back to the theater. The book is Performing the Unstageable, Success, Imagination, and Failure by Karen Quigley. You can get the book at uh, Methuen Drama. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Tony. It's been really brilliant to chat through. (laughs) 